Hello, everybody. Turn this up in my headphones, Charles. Yes, I will view. Run it back. <laughs> no. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Welcome to a really special, really exciting episode of the Friends Talking Fantasy Podcast. This is Charles, and with me today is none other than my co-host, Dylan. And you can expect an A-space rousing episode from us today 100 percent. you know this is a this is a huge day for any fantasy podcast this would be a huge day it's the day where we talk about the lord of the rings it's been a long time coming charles and (laughs) any first time listeners who are just tuning in now first of all hello nice to meet you (laughs) <laughs> I'm Dylan. I'm and, Charles. Thanks for being here. <laughs> and you may not know if this is your first time listening that this is my first time ever reading a Lord of the Rings <laughs> book. <laughs> yeah, as a, reading as the a Fellowship of the Ring podcast host, it was quite surprising. I feel like the roles have have been reversed. It's kind of poetic in a way that. That first friends pitching fantasy played out the way it did. Uh, that we, in King Killer Chronicles, it's kind of the reverse situation where I had never read it and you read it and loved it, and you've been trying to get me to read it for a long time. And now here we are at the Lord of the Rings podcast, our next but buddy read, and it's the exact opposite. I've been with these books forever, and, and Dylan has never read them, and I've been trying to get him to read them, and uh, yes. Yeah, a really interesting situation we now find ourselves in. Yeah, I mean, I'm lucky I haven't had my fantasy podcaster license revoked already by not reading these. I have watched the movies. I think <laughs> I'm just one of those people who got into modern fantasy a la watching the Game of Thrones show and then started by reading some of those books and then right. just... <laughs> Even after watching the Lord of the Rings movies, it had always been a dark, gritty, modern, sometimes grim, dark fantasy guy who, I don't know, never got around to actually reading the Lord of the Rings books. And I think that being podcasters now and feeling <laughs> like we have to have some sense of knowing what we're talking about. Some authority. I, yeah, a little bit of authority, I think, got you to read a series you'd been long putting <laughs> off for your own baggage reasons. Yes. <laughs> not, not wanting to read an unfinished series. And then uh, I had to put my baggage aside for just a bit and say it's time to read The Lord of the Rings. And here we are. We're doing it. And you know what? I think it's going to bring up some interesting, some interesting perspectives. I feel like there's a lot of people in your boat where they loved you know game of thrones and they've seen the lord of the rings movies but for some reason the act of reading the lord of the rings books just doesn't appeal to them i know i have other friends that are the exact same way 
And I think it's just something to do with reading something that's like more high fantasy, something a little older that might prevent people from enthusiastically diving in. Yeah, I guess I could speak a little to what held me back. I think some of it is that when I've seen a movie or a TV show of something and they do a really good job of it, I kind of feel like, oh, I know that story now. So do I really need to rehash this in another format or do I spend my time with some new stories and taking those in? And how could you not talk about the Lord of the Rings movies? I mean, they were so huge and explosive when they came out. Everyone beyond just fantasy enthusiasts have seen them or at least know of them. And it's was quite the phenomena. So it's kind of shifted people's younger people who didn't like live in a time before these movies or like were young when these movies came out. It's like kind of affected their willingness to dive into the books, I think. For sure. And of course there, I have had that sense that it might feel outdated or just, I think I asked you if the prose would feel archaic as one of the questions during our friends pitching fantasy episode. And yeah, I, I don't know. I was put off and I was reading a lot of modern fantasy without really knowing when I would get around to these. And I'm thankful for the friends pitching fantasy format that we've decided on because it's, it's what finally got me to it brought us here it brought me to yeah. king killers it brought you to lord of the rings it's done great things for us already for sure so that's and... the kind of takes we're going to come into this we're going to have a first time perspective and we're going to have a more uh, a seasoned perspective as well so you'll be hearing kind of two t- two takes on it which i think will make the conversation uh, hopefully a-, a lot more interesting it seems like we're just adding to this large pile that is all the discussions that people have had about lord of the rings over the past like 70 years or however long it's been so it- it's just one of those things where it's like trying to make sure our own perspectives are clear so that we can at least bring something unique to the to the conversation for sure charles i mean i've been thinking over the last week or so what more can we say i know it's almost like an intimidating task because yeah we're not lore masters of lord of the rings no. so we can't like teach anyone anything new about lord of the rings lore or bring up hot you know trivia from the legendarium or anything like that but we can kind of react to it from this modern setting of like where we've how we've come up and our experience with these books and how the movies kind of shaped our opinions of the books and and how it guided us through our our reading experience and then kind of this retroactive thing of like look we're so deep into modern fantasy what was it like to take a step back and and read something like lord of the rings which is considered like the fantasy book it's hard to talk about it because it's like the series on which every other series has kind of been influenced from so it's a tall order to kind of bring up a a fresh conversation about it (laughs) definitely and i see people 
bringing up this conversation sometimes on the internet where it's like, what would it be like if the Lord of the Rings was published today? How would it be received? And I can't think of a conversation that (laughs) makes less sense (laughs) than trying to have a conversation about how would the Lord of the Rings fit into a current genre that it played such a seminal role in establishing like the tropes it's like oh yeah well it'd be viewed as tropey it's like (laughs) well when you create the tropes that can happen yeah and i think that what we can offer rather than necessarily speculating on how it'd be received if it was published today is you can have at least someone in in me that i've read a, a lot of modern fantasy before coming into this and i can try to give at least one person's perspective on how well has it held up uh Mm. obviously it's an extremely influential (laughs) and legendary story in the genre but how does it feel reading it now after reading all the things that it's inspired maybe not all but a lot well I, I'm so looking forward to having that conversation. We started King Killer with you being like, I have to hear your like your first impressions right away before we get too into the meat of it. And I know exactly what you were going through at that time. Before we talk about what was good, what was bad, what happened, we just got to hear what your first impressions were. I think you just got to kind of share with us what your experience was like picking these books up for the first time being someone who's lived in fantasy their whole life and never read it. For sure. Well, I'll say first things first is I enjoyed it more than I thought I would. That's and... great to hear. You can be <laughs> honest if you did, yeah. you know, you can say it I wasn't would be. your thing if you wanted to. <laughs> I'm on the record defending Denna, so obviously I have no <laughs> issues being honest even if it might get me some pushback. So <laughs> Well, I'm very I, relieved I, to hear that. Yeah, I feel like some of my concerns about the prose and maybe the dialogue and stuff feeling outdated, you know, there's moments where you can see that this is a bit older, but I think my worries were mostly unfounded. Like, <laughs> the the dialogue is, is sharper than I would have thought. It's not as dry as I, I would have guessed. And I'll say... I see why this is a book that is still a lot of people's favorite book. Or I mean, this is just the Fellowship of the Ring I'm talking about here. So, right. you know, take that for what it is. But I can see why this series is still something that even after reading some of the more modern stuff that builds on some of these things and subverts it, that people look back and say, no, I actually still like the Lord of the Rings the best because there's things that Tolkien does and I think had the ability to do here because it was so innovative and new at the time that you really aren't allowed to do to the same extent in a modern publishing setting. I mean, even just things in like some things he really takes his time with, like uh, all the Bombadil stuff. <laughs> yes. And yes. Uh, some things that he, he can really just revel in the fun of his world building. 
in yes. a way that I think you're not supposed to nowadays in fantasy. But weirdly enough, now that like few people are doing that, me going back to the Lord of the Rings where Tolkien is just having so much fun with like telling you everything about this world that he's so happy to have created. I don't know. That was actually like weirdly fresh, (laughs) even though it was something that they had to stop doing in fantasy because it was feeling like it was being overdone, all this world builders disease. But I don't know. It was cool. Like, and it made some of the conversations that they'd have feel more, real I, yeah I guess. Like more lived in more yeah lived in is great mm-hmm. yeah like just even when they're at the council and they're talking and i guess this will have lord of the rings spoilers if you're listening to a fantasy <laughs> podcast and, and you don't know anything about the story of lord of the rings uh, through the fellowship of the ring but when they're at the council and they're just trying to talk through the logistics of like, okay, what are we going to do with this ring? And they're coming up with all these ideas. The conversation around it very much felt like what I feel like a council (laughs) of that nature would feel like, even just when we're like, oh, should we have invited Bombadil? Like, you know, like (laughs) maybe I should have, but like we couldn't give the ring to him because he's in that, like, I guess. He doesn't really leave his, his forest. (laughs) Yeah. It wouldn't have worked, like, this kind of stuff. And it just feels like, because Tolkien understands his world so well and went through this intense world-building process where now people think of it more like, oh, like, I need to just give the tip of the iceberg and give enough for people to assume that there's (laughs) way more underneath the water, even though I haven't spent all the time doing that because I'm trying to crank out these publications here. Right, right. You can tell there's some things that happen when you actually do have the entire iceberg fleshed out and are not afraid to show it for sure. I think this book, I don't know, has the opportunity to take us into. Exactly. And and I think you touched on one of like the biggest strengths of, of this series is how much crazy detail there is into this world and how much history there is how many different languages had been created for it and like tolkien has the whole history of every character of all these lineages and stories and lore and he goes crazy into it and it almost like as descriptive as the book can get there's tons of history that he wrote and is written in like legendarium and samarillion and all that other stuff that he doesn't even need to bring up in the fellowship but because it existed, it 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 still felt present in the story where like people are able to be like, oh, well, Tom kind of stays in his own place. He doesn't whatever. And then you can go back and read all this crazy stuff about Tom Bombadil if you really wanted to of like the whole lore of him. And that's what makes this series so great. Modern series, you have like magic systems and people make maps and and like governments and things like that. I, I think Tolkien took it to an insane crazy degree with like creating characters and histories of things just to have like he even has a history of the hobbits of like all the families and like how they kind of split (laughs) off and how some families treat other families it's like so it becomes so irrelevant almost immediately in terms of moving the plot along but it's what gives hobbits like this 
humble, lived in, breathed in kind of vibe. So For yeah, sure. I mean the something that I definitely see in in these books more than in modern fantasy is just like how much time he spent into the building up the history and how much concrete, very specific history there is leading up to these points that makes the story just that much more kind of lived in and that much more epic kind of in scale too. Definitely. And there's other things about Tolkien's willingness to take time in places that modern fantasy authors for the most part would not even just like with the the farmer what's uh, i can't remember the the farmer's name charles but uh, uh, that frodo had stolen uh, the yeah. yeah yeah anyway i remember his name and, but <laughs> um point being that they like spend time and like have beer with this person yeah. <laughs> and it's kind of just like they're they eat with his family the... and of course he has like a a farmer maggot is his name yes and yes, he's, yes, yes, yes. He, and he's got like a wife and all these kids and everything it's yes. like why did he write all this stuff why does farmer <laughs> maggot have like this whole family and like they farm specific crops and like yeah all this craziness <laughs> and just the idea there's lots of times during their journey so far in the Fellowship of the Ring where they just reach a point and they'll stop there. I mean, at times even for months, I mean, they'll skip through a lot of it, but I don't know. There's a patience to the storytelling. Right. I think you nowadays, if an author wrote some of those scenes, they'd be like, you can just like truncate this so much or cut this scene completely and i see why that happens in fact that some of the faster pace that a lot of modern fantasy has is something that i like a lot but there's something to the lord of the rings at least in fellowship so far where it does find a way to capture that sense of being on a journey right more than really I mean, anything that I can think of right now that I've read, just the idea that journey isn't just like hopping from this point where this really intense action scene happens and then a quick cool down and then another intense scene. I don't know. Journey are the A lot of like modern fantasy seems very like action reaction and like it happens very fast. The passage of time and the fellowship of the ring is incredibly interesting. It's like, from when Frodo gets the ring to when he starts his quest is like a crazy amount of time. It's like 17 years when in the movie it was like a scene, you know? And in any modern fantasy, it's not like someone gets told what to do and then waits 17 years (laughs) and then goes and does it. It's like that never happens. So that is in itself is very interesting. And then they'll stop in places and like, it's like, oh, well, it's almost winter now. So let's just kind of wait. (laughs) <laughs> and wait until like it gets a little easier to leave and then we'll we'll head out after that and i'm like wow so they just like we'll just stay here for months and months or they'll stay here for years and it's um just a really interesting because the movies are, are do a thing that's like well look we can move this along because we're limited by we can't make a four hour long movie at least for theaters you can release it later but you can't have like release a four hour long movie in the theaters so it's like they did a good job of moving those spots along 
but the books tell it in a very interesting way of things take their time to be lived in and progressed and it kind of adds to this idea of like look this is not just like a a one and done a crazy experience that a character goes through this is like a thing that they are living in and it's like their whole quest and it to me it adds to that sense of like epicness that yeah. a lot of modern fantasy because it's so like gritty and, and intrinsic and focused it doesn't really have like i love mistborn but it never felt like epic in the sense that this was like some epic quest old school journey it's an amazing series but it, it, it's more in like epic in their powers and what they can do whereas this is like epic in the the idea of a quest you know like going on a journey and an adventure a quest is something that is very lord of the rings to me those aspects are are different from anything that i've read and you know i also <laughs> One of the classics I haven't read is Wheel of Time, so I'm not mm-hmm. sure how it is or isn't captured well in that. But I'll say it was very strange because the books aren't that long, actually, compared to a lot of no. what we read in modern fantasy. They're far shorter than the King Killer. <laughs> it's Chronicle like a quarter of sure. the King Killer Chronicle of the Wise Man's Fear. Uh, the Wise Man's <laughs> Fear, yeah, and I. I remember so I, my hard copy I have in front of me right now, 531 pages. And it's pretty small. You can probably see it on our little Zoom chat here, Charles. Yeah, yeah. And they, or people can go to our Instagram <laughs> at the FTF podcast uh, and see, because I posted at least the spines of these at one point. <laughs> and yeah, I remember thinking, how in this short amount of time have has Tolkien made me feel like I've been on such a long enduring quest (laughs) it is impressive because when you think of Tolkien you're like oh these really long descriptions you spend so much time learning about hobbits and then you look at it and it's a quarter of the page it's like a quarter of the word count of Mistborn or um something that reads really, you know, that wouldn't seem as verbose. And so you're like, how does he make it feel so long and lived in? His economy of words is really quite efficient. And I always admired that about these books where it's like every scene has a purpose, is lived in, they take their time in it, and they move on, and they keep going through all these amazing different scenes and settings. Like Middle Earth is so alive in in Tolkien's mind and it's it has such a long history that he can move through it and move characters through it and and take you along in that experience of like wow this is such an exotic place but it's been so it's been so carefully constructed to the every minute detail like Farmer Maggot has X amount of kids and whatever and where it's like wow this is something that has had a longer history than what we've experienced. And we feel that in the story. And I think that's what builds it up in its, in its epicness. That's well said, Charles, Mm -hmm. that stuff about the long descriptions. (laughs) I think it, it is true, which is weird to say after a lot has gotten done in a 531 page 
novel to say that there's a lot of time spent on description of scenery. There is, though. And I think that's part of, I've been big on this, uh, is something a bug or a feature depends probably on your own perspective on things. I'm more of a character person, so sometimes the this imagery maybe doesn't do it for me as much as it would someone who's super into world building and the aesthetics of a scene and this kind of stuff. But again, that's, that's something that I've been thinking, Hey, if you're super into that kind of stuff, there's still not really anything I've read out there for you. That's going to do it better than these books are going to do it. Right. And I also think it's like, for the every detail he puts into like scenery and giving backstory to characters, like when actually there is something happening, he is very quick about it. You know, like he will, he's not going to give you the like step by step thing of what's happening where it's like, and then he like, like drew his sword and then parried and then he dived into a, a roll and then blocked it and shot an arrow. It's very much like, the story carries quickly in, in those moments and the way he describes action and and um, fighting and things like that. It, it, it's very almost like uh, like the way he narrates it, it. It's more just kind of the impression of what's happening. And we're not like getting exactly like the technique Aragon used to fend off the ring rates. You know, it's like he, For he sure. like used fire and drove them away. It's not like he like was scrambling around looking for a, a thing of wood and then lit it. And like, you know, it was just very much like, this is the flow of what's happening. So very that's interesting way point. to give that kind of, and that's kind of what might feel like older about it. You know, Sanderson goes so deep into it and then they pulled on this and pushed on this and burned this and did that. <laughs> it's like, you won't get that so much in, in Tolkien's work. Exactly. I was thinking of Joe Abercrombie, probably surprising no one. And <laughs> Abercrombie will give you all the ugly details of what's going on in a fight scene down to, you know, people slipping and things like that. Right, Some right. of the things that are less pretty than than what you'd typically expect in a fight. Sanderson will paint you a picture that feels like it's taken right out of a great video game fight scene or a movie right. or something like that. And it's like just that. a case of like an author writing what they love. And and Sanderson mm-hmm. loves the magic mechanics of Mistborn and really spent a lot of time giving us how that how being a Mistborn works. And it's what makes it such a great series is that it's so focused on that. So if you're writing a story and you spend all this time creating this really specific magic system this really hard magic system with all these rules that you would dedicate time to explaining the giving the blow by blows of the fights where tolkien who knows what's going on (laughs) when someone uses magic it's like i don't even understand how the ring works you know (laughs) who knows what it really does it's not quite clear and it it doesn't matter because you get the sense it's very very bad so it's like and and it can and it can affect really powerful people so you know it's bad and that's kind of the difference. Tolkien definitely is much more of like a historian and much more of a guy for languages and things like that. So he, that's where he kind of channels his his energy. And when you have masters in the craft that just choose different things, you get to see 
you know, where the how the priorities and someone's personal tastes affect their writing style. And it's it's really interesting just to see Tolkien write action versus writing <laughs> setting. Definitely. It was interesting. <laughs> There's a scene where Legolas shoots an arrow to kill something and it isn't really revealed what he killed. <laughs> Do you remember this? Yes, he killed like a one of the like it was they were getting attacked by like wolves or something and he shot an arrow and it maybe killed one of them and that drove the others away or he killed like a something that was spying on them that or something that was channeling all the energy that was forcing the other animals to come out and it broke a spell of some kind or it scared them away wasn't really told like did he was there magic involved in this attack or not it's like who really knows and i mean i do want to get into kind of the what worked and what didn't aspects of it but um let's let's get into some more specific like character stuff or, or or like actual moments in the book do you have some standout like what are some moments whether there are characters or scenes that really stood out to you as something that you uh, really liked well i can start with characters sure. i'll say that i think i appreciate gandalf a lot more yeah. uh, from the books than i ever really did from the movie I think that, or movies, hmm. I think that you just get a lot more time with Gandalf, and especially to the point where this, the scene in Moria where you lose Gandalf in the movies kind of just like felt like it came on pretty fast, even in the extended editions. It's like, <laughs> okay, like now Gandalf's gone. Like I thought he was like a big part of the story. <laughs> um <laughs> But in the books, I felt like we'd known Gandalf for so long by the time right. that we'd got in there that the loss of Gandalf as this common leadership presence uh, who, yeah, is super crucial. And I think, you know, you're in Frodo and the Hobbit's uh, lack of shoes, I guess. And you're, <laughs> <laughs> you're in their hairy feet. Yeah. And you get to see people like Gandalf through their eyes in a way where it's like, Oh, like, okay, Gandalf's around. Like I feel so much safer now. (laughs) And then I guess I felt the loss of Gandalf so much more in the books at Moria than I felt in the movies. So that's something that stands out to me. I can see that. Um, And I, I agree. When I th- if I had to pick like a best character in this book, Gandalf just gets all the best lines and he's in all the best scenes. It, it's hard not to pick him, and I would agree because where I come from, my like my history with Lord of the Rings as a story is you know I the books when I mean when the movies came out it was like the early two thousands and we were in like junior high or something maybe even younger, and um, that was my first impression, and then that was the first time I read the books. And then this is my third time reading the books. And I'll say one of the things, like, when I first read the books and first watched the movies, I was so much younger. There was a lot that I hadn't quite figured out yet just from lack of experience in reading fantasy of, like, how powerful are these characters? Like, why did things happen the way they did? 
going back now for my third time after being a much more experienced like fantasy reader and <laughs> like um someone who's thought more about fantasy series than the average person i'd say uh to read it now in that context it's like i totally the books don't really because like we're going tolkien has these things lived out gandalf has a huge history in terms of like how epic he is right and like how every character knows who he is how every character has reverence for him how he's somehow a force of nature that everything that is good has nothing but respect and admiration for. And everyone's like, oh, well, if Gandalf is having problems, then you know it's bad. And you have just like an entire history of that being lived in in these books. The books also take the time. It's those 17 years where Frodo was like terrified to leave the Shire because he hadn't heard from Gandalf. And it was like a big deal for him to leave without it and they go through all these adventures just wondering where Gandalf is and it became a whole thing and they touch on it in the books but not to the extent like you have no idea that in the movies and you have no idea that Gandalf is this force of nature that he is in the books when you watch the movies at least when I was younger it's like you get that he's like a wizard but you don't get that he's like one of the wizards so the loss in the book and he like in the book he just takes charge more quickly and more strongly he's definitely seen as the leader and he's definitely the one that knows the most and like he's the only one that's like you know i've like been through the gates of moria and it's pretty messed up there trust me you don't want to go there And, and then like even the elves um he's a friend of the elves which is a very rare thing to be so definitely like getting to live more of getting to have more of an understanding of Gandalf added a lot of value to these scenes that we're familiar with in the movies that we're now reading in the books. It definitely makes it more impactful. I got to say my favorite scene in all these books absolutely has to be the minds of Moria. I mean, reading that I had so much fun reading that, even though I've like watched that scene a million times, I've read it twice in the books already, like reading it now I just forgot how well paced it was and how genuinely like intense it could get. Yeah. I was like that holds up against any modern fantasy. I mean it all does obviously, but this is like such a strong scene especially for Tolkien who's not really known for writing action. It's like come on, this is the definition of epic to me. I mean that where they're in the they're in the tomb and they're reading the journal and it's like, we cannot get out. The end comes drums, drums in the deep they're coming. And then, you know, as he's reading it, they're, they're like the drum, they hear the drums and they're going through all of that. And then the orcs attack. And then like everyone, like Frodo got stabbed. And and then Mm -hmm. Gandalf, I love that scene where they were like, Gandalf says like go ahead go ahead and then he like just comes like flying down the stairs he's like whoa that was crazy man like (laughs) I almost died back there (laughs) that was such a fun moment where he was like that was a close one I almost met my end there and I met my match in there but somehow I survived and then you get the the Balrog and only Legolas knows the like absolute horror of the Balrog and that's such a great moment where he's like fly like get out of here and then he's just like he doesn't say shall not pass he says you cannot pass yeah i know (laughs) which i you gotta give it to the movies for changing it like 
the movies was badass. Uh, they they change it in the movies. It's the shall movies not is the shall movies? not pass, and the books is oh, you really? cannot pass. Oh, yeah. So, Interesting. It's like that whole you cannot pass thing is so great. I mean, that's just to me the whole atmosphere of that scene and the stakes in that scene and the kind of almost like horror aspects of it came out of nowhere too, and it's just a really entertaining part of the book. It really is. I even enjoy when they're trying to get in. Yeah. And I'll say that is something that felt like a throwaway scene in the movies and it doesn't it doesn't get to take its time <laughs> for them to figure out right. the riddle. It just kind of I, I watched the scene again in the movies cuz I was like I remember this being different. And I think in the movies Frodo is just like Oh, like what is it again? Uh, and he's like, speak for and yeah. He's, he's like, like what's Elvis? And then it opens the door. Yeah, yeah. But <laughs> in the books, it gets to be the kind of this long process of all of them mulling it over <laughs> and trying to figure it out, and then they circle back to it. And I think Gandalf yes. just is the one who figures it out in the yeah, books, <laughs> which feels way more appropriate. I guess they were just trying in the movies to make Frodo this like protagonist who does stuff or something. But it's way it makes way more sense the way it's done the books. And even it's a more like funny leading interesting up to scene. Deciding to go to Moria, like they try like in this in the movies it's kinda of like a throwaway scene where they're in snow and they're like, mm-hmm. There's too much snow. Let's we have to go to Moria and he's like, Okay. And then like, <laughs> Gimli's the one that suggests it and then they're like, Okay, it's a bad place, but we'll go. Where in this it's like Gandalf's like, I think we gotta go there and Aragon's like, No, way are we ever going to go there and and they like tried so hard and they went so far out of their way to to try and go up this mountain and then they had to double back and it was like they tried everything in their power to avoid moria at all costs and they even talk about it in rivendell the dwarves are like yeah balan went there and we haven't heard from him (laughs) in a (laughs) long time so it's like man that place is there's some real evil going on in there they dug too deep so, uh, I don't know. It's just the, all the stakes behind it were were being raised even since Rivendell. So, I feel like that's kind of missed in the movies, and that adds to the value of these the payoff of that scene in the books. That's totally fair, and I I'll say so, something that is seems missing from the books that felt like a cool part of the movies is this Legolas Gimli. Like rivalry doesn't really seem to be present in the books, which that surprised me. There's a little in the background when they get to Lothlorien and like the whole thing of like bandaging the eyes, and then you see Gimli kind of coming around and and being just in awe of Galadriel, and that kind of gets him buddy buddy with Legolas. But they haven't really fought anyone yet, you know. They haven't killed any orcs yet, so. It takes a little time for them to get to that point where they have a nice rivalry going because they haven't really gotten into too much combat yet. It's been a lot of traveling at this point, besides Moria. I feel like there's a little more, maybe it's less subtle. (laughs) There's a little more in the movies of just like, I won't be traveling with an elf (laughs) kind of talk, which I don't know if that's an actual anything resembling a quote, but it just feels like... Gimli and Legolas were all in on that kind of attitude in the movies, and yeah, in those the are books, some great comic see... relief moments too. Like, <laughs> yeah. I think that's just the 
charisma of that actor that played Gimli mm. coming through. And maybe we'll see, I can't remember, maybe we'll see more of it in Two Towers when they actually go off to war and, and go into battles and things like that. We might get to see a little more competition. But yeah, I felt like those characters really weren't all that present. Like they were written into the Lothlorien mm-hmm. scenes and everything, but that didn't really have a whole lot of weight for me. Like I understand the significance of like giving the hair and everything. And the whole thing with the bandages was kind of interesting. It And the idea that they were all going to wear the bandages together to save face for Gimli, you know, as a group. And even Legolas was like, I don't want to wear a bandana. I want to see this mm-hmm. place. And they're like, no, we either all do it or we or we don't go, which was an interesting thing that I feel like a, a company would have to kind of deal with. So I like those things, but those characters I could take or leave in this book, honestly. I'll say it feels a little bit like in The Fellowship of the Ring that Tolkien just wanted someone from <laughs> he wanted an elf, he yes. wanted a dwarf, yes. he wanted he just wanted them all in the mix so he could use them to establish what a dwarf's place in this world is, what an elf's place in this world is. And I'm sure they'll flesh them out more, but yeah, he's they got kinda of felt like stock characters up. early on and right. I, I I mean the movies they stick out in my especially Gimli, I guess <laughs> is stick out in my head as these very memorable characters. So it's interesting yeah. to see. Usually you get a more fleshed out version in the book, but I feel like in some <laughs> ways we get less fleshed out versions of, of those two characters. Yeah, that's very interesting. Least. I think they just had like A-list talent play those characters and it's like, they're so good. Uh, uh, Gimli in the movies, he just takes an axe to the ring, right? The council <laughs> of Elrond, and it, like, so the axe good. just like explodes, and everyone's like, no, you can't just hit the one <laughs> ring with an axe. <laughs> like, no one thought of that before. <laughs> it's a great... He's like, so what are we waiting for? <laughs> <laughs> which so is funny. a fun... Which is a fun moment. And... um. No, I did like the Council of Elrond, though, but in both. But yeah, he didn't really give as much attention to characters like Gimli and Legolas, and he did to Frodo and Gandalf and like these other characters. So we'll see how that changes in the next two books. But yeah, those two, although I love them as characters, there's not a lot of going on with them that I would consider them like one of the better characters in these books. Well, Charles, I don't think either one of us has uttered the name Sam to this point, and that's <laughs> probably criminal <laughs> this deep into the podcast. I it's, know that so he's much one of your favorite characters. Yet. Yeah, I love Sam. Talk, yeah. Sam's great. Uh, he's still in his very humble beginnings in these mm-hmm. moments, so I think his real strength comes in in like the third book, but... I do love his character in these. Like he is one of the few people that really has a good sense of understanding and practicality around like their mission and what they need to do. <laughs> and he's he was thinking about it like at the in the end of this book where he's like um Frodo's not just going to like run off. He's 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 probably going to go take a boat. And he was like the only one that was able to like go and find him. And I just love all the little touches to his character. Like he uses like a frying pan as a weapon and he just loves the horse bill 
and has an yeah. he's very loyal that to the horse. That was a sad moment. Yeah. With Phil. <laughs> they do have that moment in the movies though where they let him go, where they let the horse go. Uh, well, I guess, I mean, that's one thing you get with a book where you can actually see yeah. the time where yeah. you see, like, oh, Sam the horse has this whole backstory really of he was raised by this guy yeah. in Bree and was, like, emaciated. <laughs> and then, like, they brought him to Rivendell where, and he ran off with Tom Bombadil's horses. And, you know, it's like this whole crazy. Even yeah. Mary's horses had backs, like, they, they, he gave the whole story of the horse, like, and then they ran off back to Tom Bombadil and lived in that land, and yeah, and then came back at some point later and, and lived happily ever after. You're like, okay, cool, <laughs> good to know that about the horses. So, no, I, I, I do love Sam. He, he's just still in his very in his very beginnings here, uh, but he is definitely the. What do they say in like sports or whatever? It's like the guy to look out for. <laughs> he's definitely like a dark horse. Yeah, you definitely want to look out all for the, Sam. All the he's horse talk be, here. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's definitely going to be making some big moves coming up. But love yeah. Sam. Very nice, humble guy. There is kind of that weird thing where it's like Frodo's like his master, which is like, yeah, what's yeah. going on with that, Charles? Well, I think it's just old and like. Frodo is like the rich guy and Sam's like the working class guy and and it's just like I'm the I'm your gardener, you know. I'm not like your buddy and pal, but then they become more friendly and more in pals towards the beginning of the journey all over those 17 years, I guess. So um and then Gandalf kind of tasks Sam with following frodo so it kind of starts with that's like it's my job to keep you safe and like mm-hmm. to protect you and that's kind of how it starts but it's nice to see that whole like um servant master thing kind of fade away and then like two buddies <laughs> that like love each other kind of take over so <laughs> it's, it's it's a nice thing to see transition but it, it what that's kind of a weird thing that didn't make it into the movies that i could see um I feel like I vaguely remember some master talk going on, but it felt very subtle if it was there at all. Like, yeah, they mentioned it a couple times. I wasn't times like taken by surprise. No, it's not books. shocking or anything or offensive or anything. It's just like weird to think of Frodo and Sam's relationship like Frodo is Sam's master. Yeah. Like master in the terms of like if he was a butler, it's like, oh, Master Baggins. It's like, because mm-hmm. I guess it's like he's the most noble family or whatever but no it's a i i like them another character that i really love that we haven't spoken a word of is boromir i think Mm. outside of maybe frodo and gandalf boromir is the more the most like developed character and as the most one of the more proactive characters he brings a lot of great um thoughts into this he's kind of like the voice of the audience in a lot of ways he's like look this is a really powerful tool we need power to defeat the dark lord so let's use the ring to do what we need to do and then destroy it so at some level you're like yeah like you can see how someone would think that would be a good idea if even though we know like the one ring is like really really bad it is a powerful tool so I always kind of liked Boromir as being that kind of voice of a little more proactive approach to 
how to handle the one ring and how he kind of put him at odds with with Frodo. I agree with that. You know, I'm one for the morally gray characters, and I'd say in the <laughs> absence of there's very little Gollum in yes. this book. So, and uh, he's a, he's lurking in the background, but <laughs> in the absence of very much Gollum, Boromir is our most morally gray character in this book, and he he does have something of a point from our perspectives i think as as readers unless we're super super well educated on (laughs) the ring and its powers and things like that at least me i was i was finding myself a little more on (laughs) on boromir's side than i felt in the movies right because (sighs) i think part of it's just i spent a lot more time reading this book than i spent watching the movies so there's part of me that was like, oh, like we're going through all of this just to like go into the enemy's territory, and, which is going to happen <laughs> two books later. And we're going to try to throw this in a <laughs> volcano. Yeah, basically. Boromir is like the only it's person like, who's like, so the plan is to go yeah. <laughs> into Mordor with the ring with <laughs> hobbits. That's the plan. We will most definitely <laughs> fail that mission. <laughs> That will yeah. never work, <laughs> and which is like I, a very fair, I get very it. fair take to have. <laughs> For sure, I get it, and I mean, maybe I also display the folly of man, but I'd be like, look, if this thing is so powerful, then it's hard not to want to just use it to destroy your enemies. And right, I, I get, and that, that and it's underlying... like you're kind of like kind of forced almost at a certain point because the to me the i would have never agreed to a plan that's like let's just go into mortar i'm like you know it's impossible if you take the ring into mortar it will get found and then it will be used against us like the, the, I, I don't think bormir ever expected that plan to succeed and he's genuinely worried like you're just delivering it to mortar like, there's no way these hobbits can pull off this task which is a very fair thing to think so he's For like, sure. if we can't destroy it and we can't, you know, and we can't have the enemy take it and there's no point in hiding it because he'll get it eventually. If we just try and keep it in Rivendell, it will eventually get taken. Then we have no choice but to use it. We have to take that risk. And I think he always knew it was a risk, but it's one of those things where it's like it it's either gets taken or we or we don't, you know, there's, there's no way in which we cannot use it because it's just going to get taken. So we may as well use it, which was a very fair point. I feel like he totally does have, he has what feels like a fair point, but there's some sort of way that Tolkien establishes how clearly it is wrong to be attempt to be, tempted by the ring and to use the ring through right. the voices of such wise characters Yeah, that I'd say in some ways for me as someone really more interested in the gray than I am uh, <laughs> the sorry I was trying to think of a pun with like Gandalf the gray but it didn't it didn't go <laughs> so I was like I'm more you interested tried. in the morally gray than I am this clear right and wrong where I would have enjoyed it even more personally, if there was a 
bit more to go on with Boromir that, hey, maybe that isn't all right. But it's just all the wise characters are like, look, I've been around this yeah. many years. I mean, you have to think in order for like gray morality to exist, like Boromir is probably as edgy as it got in fantasy mm-hmm. for a character for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> and then you have to have many characters like Boromir to be written before we get characters in in the modern day. Like Logan Ninefingers. Like, yeah. <laughs> I, I think <laughs> one of my biggest, th- this kind of touches on one of my biggest kind of, not like criticisms, but one of my least favorite things about these books is like how power even works like how does the one ring even work like we know from the movies the ring is so obviously bad because everyone that holds it gets this like creepy look and starts acting (laughs) creepy and weird because like they go through this whole prologue of showing Isildur hold the ring and he's like no I won't destroy it i'll keep it for myself you know it's like he acts very weird (laughs) so it's like okay well we know that that's but frodo like chills with it for 17 years and is totally cool and like tom bombadil puts it on and takes it off and he's like oh this is a fun thing and like all this weird (laughs) stuff happens with it and gandalf's like ah i really shouldn't take it you know it's not anything where it's like don't tempt me with that anyone that touches it will turn evil except for you hobbits so it's like a I don't, there's a lot of the magic of the One Ring that I don't really understand how it works. And I think that's kind of what took away. It's like, how would Boromir use their ring to fight Sauron? Like, the ring makes you invisible, maybe? Or, like, heightens your powers? Like (laughs) It does make you invisible. (laughs) It's one of those things that I felt very bizarre on. And then we talk about things like um, the ring wraiths. It's like, are they epic? Or are they nine people that can't hunt for hobbits you know it's like like (laughs) what can and can't they do like can they like a little fire scares them they can't come out in the daylight like what what are these things you know and like why is sauron up in his castle why isn't he like walking around like talking to people (laughs) and doing stuff you know it's like what can and can he do like he can he's (laughs) omnipotent and can look everywhere but for some reason can't find the ring ever he like can't be sure of where it is even though frodo's had it this whole entire time and he knows the name Baggins and he still can't figure it out. So that I'm sure it's all explained in like the deep lore, but in terms of like servicing the plot, there is for me, it left me with a lot of questions, even after my third time reading it of like, what are the stakes here? How powerful are these people? Like what's really going on? Like what is actually bad about the ring besides it corrupts people and ultimately brings them Binds them to Sauron's will, I guess. That's like the temptation of power. I'm not sure. I see where you're coming from, Charles. I didn't think I'd have to defend <laughs> Lord of the Rings against you here, Charles. <laughs> I, <laughs> I think maybe I found myself a little more generous about that. I guess I was wondering the same thing. I was also <laughs> thinking, hey, this... The, the, all we've seen this thing do is that it can make people invisible. Mm-hmm. So there was a part of me that was like, watch out. If Boromir gets a power of invisibility, <laughs> the world is doomed. Right. But <laughs> but I know that there's a piece, and, and this is very soft magic system, where the, the problems are allowed to be hazier. The solutions right. just can't be. So I'm willing to buy that okay 
there's something about this thing where especially I assume if Gandalf gets a hold of this thing, right? right whatever way it would compound his abilities would be exactly that's what they say up. they say it's like the more powerful the person that wears it the stronger they are so that's why if gandalf were to wear it it would be potentially disastrous but why hobbits can have it and wear it because they're not powerful in the like sense of they have no magic they have no strength but they are like honest kind humble creatures that are noble and so that's what makes them good ring bearers. Whereas Gandalf would be a terrible ring bearer because he has so much power that he could get binded by Sauron and through this ring. So I get it, but the rules were never like concrete enough that I'm even like my third time going through, I'm like not understanding certain things, especially around ring wraiths. And because I had a harder time with the ring wraiths this time around than I ever had in the past. Of like they really couldn't nab these four hobbits, huh? It was like that difficult for them. <laughs> like, the tree in the forest got one of them, got no, or maybe a couple of them. So. The tree got Merry and Pippin, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But the ring wraiths who can move around. <laughs> the, the ring wraiths are like the the stormtroopers. Yeah. The they're rings. very so stormtrooper escorts. Like, can... like they're like dangerous, but never actually do anything dangerous except for Weathertop which is a scene I really like. I like when Frodo gets stabbed mm-hmm. you know, like as old school as as these books are Tolkien does do a good job with the stakes of everything like I kind of forgot I always was like oh all these characters are the best at everything and can never die but like when the hobbits were left on their own they almost died <laughs> and then even with <laughs> Aragon like Frodo got stabbed stabbed with black magic it's like gandalf dies it's like there's boromir their own member of the company gets tempted and attacks frodo you know like all these things do happen like the stakes are played with and are very high and so i i get that moment with the at weathertop when the ring right stabbed frodo but then they just ran away when they saw fire it was like you have these cursed evil blades and they can't even kill a hobbit. <laughs> like the hobbit just holds out <laughs> for however long it is. Like I don't know. It's like they explain it all. Like Aragorn rubs some herbs on him, and then they made it to Rivendell and whatever. But still, it's like you think if it was a cursed blade that it would kill you just instantly. <laughs> like it's a pretty lame curse that it's like it will kill you very slowly <laughs> over a long period of time. There's something about how it didn't get to the cursed blade. Yeah, seriously, they explained (laughs) how like it was working towards his heart or something, and I forget exactly what was going on there. But anyway, it's just those kinds of moments where I'm like, "Eh, yeah. But that's not really the point of Lord of the Rings, anyway. No, I mean minor things. That's the thing, right? Like part of the issue is the stuff we were just talking about with the uh, could we know more about the ring and stuff like that. Uh, we know enough to know it's it's really really bad if if this <laughs> falls into the wrong hands, right? And I think maybe that's enough as long as the, right. The only time that they solve any problems with the ring, it's basically by going invisible, which is something that is hard magic in a weird way. <laughs> right. It's like you put the ring on if you're Frodo, you <laughs> go invisible <laughs> or Bilbo, <laughs> the or Bilbo. <laughs> yes, the stakes <laughs> are. are 
it can be as high as you want, but if you put that <laughs> ring on, you might be able to slip away by <laughs> going invisible. Right. Yeah, and I mean that's hard magic system. How how you can solve a problem with it? (laughs) But it's a minor nitpick. I mean, it's the idea of the ring is so cool, and it's such an epic story that I love it all. It's just one of those things, and when you read it for the third time, that you're like, "Eh, it's just something I never kind of got past. But it's so mild. One of the things I'm curious about before we run out of time, what did you think of all the like songs and poetry and all that stuff? It was interesting. I'll <laughs> say they don't drive the plot forward at all. I mean, not that they're supposed to. And there's a charm to it. I, I'm not dying to start getting more songs in the novels that I'm consuming. I think I would see those italics start coming up. Like I'd turn a page and I'd be like, oh, all right, like, <laughs> buckle up, Dylan. Here yeah. we go with another one of these. Right. I mean, it is some of that reveling in the world building, and I'm, uh, I'm more of a character person, and, and maybe more plot than world building too. So, yeah, I could give and or those, take that. Those songs have no plot and, and, and no character development. So, no, unless except there was one about Galadriel, I think, right. Yeah, I mean, I have no problems going on record saying that those aren't for me and that I don't really get, I don't get anything out of them. (laughs) Like, I'm fine with them being there, but I kind of glaze over them, you know. Originally, I'd be like, is is there clues in this? Is is there something (laughs) happening? But it's like, no, dude, it's just something fun that that Tolkien wrote and it does it is based on history that you can go back and read in the legendarium or whatever but it's like well I don't need to do that stuff like as many times as I've read the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings I've never picked up the Samarillion or legendarium or read any annotations I'm just not interested in going that deep I think what makes Lord of the Rings good is it that stuff exists I think by having a world that's that fleshed out and built makes the story that much more alive and epic in scale but that doesn't mean i need to go back and read it all and and know it all it it, it just becomes too much like i'm reading a textbook and steering away from the story so i, I don't get involved in any of that stuff honestly <laughs> i mean different strokes for different folks that's again one of those things that really you don't that... see in modern fantasy anymore no, no. there's like no. maybe one song if the thing is if a song is important to the plot or whatever but characters like like your main character, who's like your your like um, ranger character, won't just bust out in song all of a sudden. Like that's just not a thing that will happen anymore. These like manly characters just be like, "I remember a time of a woman so fair." It's like, <laughs> that you'd read yeah, that now. Gimli, be like, that's Gimli so busted out yeah. a song at one point where it's like, "Tell it's us like, about oh. like Moria," and he's like, "Well." <laughs> 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 Someone should make a Lord of the Rings musical. I'm sure some many have tried. I'm sure there's probably a bunch of screenplays out there. <laughs> oh, so funny. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's one of those things, though, right? Some people are gonna love that kind of stuff, and if that's something you're looking for, then Lord of the Rings is still gonna be the best place to find it. It's not like there's been some spin-off subgenre in fantasy that's gone way in on the singing <laughs> that I know of anyway. No. So 
there's aspects of this that are unlike anything else, which is amazing considering that everything else in the genre is copying it to some degree. <laughs> <laughs> right. Nope, that's true. We're nearing the end of the show. Is there anything you wanted to bring up about these books? I kind of want to talk about Tom Bombadil. Yes, that's what I wanted to talk about, too. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, I don't know if I want to end the show on Tom Bombadil, but we need to have a Tom Bombadil discussion. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it feels like it fits in with some of the song stuff. Yeah, this idea of like gratuitous world building. (laughs) It's like, speaking of that, let's talk about Tom Bombadil. I feel like, okay, here's my thoughts on Tom Bombadil. I think the only reason people like him now is that because the movies are so prevalent and everyone knows the movies, and Tom Bombadil is just not even a whisper in the movies. (laughs) Even the extended edition, Peter Jackson was like a hard pass on on Tom. (laughs) So I think it's you'd had to have read the book. So I think everyone kind of says Tom like references Tom Bombadil as a rallying cry of camaraderie like we read the books and only we understand Tom Bombadil like he's like one of the only characters that like only book readers would know you know so so it's one of those things that I think people just like to like him but my thing is all like is he all that great in the first place like I, I get that we like it's a fun name and it's like yeah only book readers know Tom Bombadil but it's like there's a reason, in my opinion, a very valid reason that he's not even a, a whisper in the movies. For sure. I don't think he would have had much of a place in the movies. And you could have a conversation about the extent to which he had a place in the books. I think I part of me enjoyed Tom Bombadil. I mean, just that it was so strange the scenes with, and and i remember so they we're in the forest a long time right right and then bombadil comes along and then bombadil takes them back to his place and then we're we're kind of in bombadil's place for a long time yes then we leave bombadil's place and we're still in the forest it feels like it's been a really long time at that point and then we're going off and then <laughs> They call Tom Bombadil again. I'm like, oh my, we're still doing the Bombadil thing. Yeah. I can't believe we're still doing Bombadil. Yes. It goes on so long. And then he comes back and you're like, no. I thought we were out of here. I thought we were leaving. And they're like, hooray, it's Tom Bombadil. And I'm like, yay. I feel like there's all that stuff in between leaving the Shire to maybe getting to Bree, but I would say even getting to Rivendell. That is the, for lack of a better word, don't hate me fans, is the biggest chore of the whole trilogy. It's like, look, if if you can read that Crick Hollow, Old Forest, Tom Bombadil section and get to Bree and Weathertop and finally to Rivendell. When you can finally get to Rivendell, it's like, oh, I know where we are now and there's actually like story progressing. We've got the company now. We've got the real characters here, not these like bizarro characters that exist 
like outside of the rules of every other character that can like put the ring on and and talk to trees and you're like what is happening in the world like even even Radagast the Brown gets put in the Hobbit movies but Tom Bombadil gets nothing because he's such a bizarre outlier thing so weird <laughs> not a it big is... Tom Bombadil fan I like saying the name it's a great name but beyond that not a fan I I think I appreciated Bombadil as and I don't know almost like the idea of Tom Bombadil coming in from only having seen the movies and then being like, I can't believe this whole thing is in these rocks. It's like, also funny to this... have a character that just breaks the system yeah. of everything. It's like, oh, that's Tom Bombadil. He's like omnipresent. He's a force of nature, but he can't get involved in this. <laughs> it's so strange. And I... I do I do think that they made the right decision by a large margin <laughs> to exclude all this Bombadil stuff from the movies. But I see its value in its kind of like fun almost like campiness yeah. for people who've only read the books like you're talking about. Yeah. And it was it was an experience like right we're talking about it right both of us felt yes. like we couldn't end our <laughs> our episode <laughs> on the fellowship of the ring without talking about tom bombadil so there's yeah. there's something there in terms of like making us feel something that means there's some value i guess to bombadil <laughs> it was it definitely felt like it, it dragged on so long Yes, but it's my it's least favorite part of the reading experience is that segment of the books. But it's one of those things that you just can't. It's like, yeah, that's a great series. Tom Bombadil part. <laughs> <laughs> so like, uh, that was a that was a segment. What was going on? Yeah, like it was. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I so. think it'd be interesting coming to the Lord of the Rings. For the first time with no <laughs> no prior knowledge. And then reading and you're you're like halfway through the book at this point. Yes, you're hundreds I, of pages in. Maybe more. And like Bombadil's coming back again. You're like, what's going on with this book? <laughs> I mean, this this Bombadil thing. It's amazing thinking He's that. He's like a main character now. <laughs> for a very very long time the lore of the rings was a book series without a movie that people loved yes and the only form that they were taking it in had tons of bombadil in yes. yeah <laughs> very true we we live in a world where they tried to erase bombadil from history <laughs> But we won't let that happen, Charles. No, Bombadil was real. (laughs) (laughs) He he was in many scenes. He saved Merry and Pippin (laughs) from the tree. And then he saved them all from something else, like more trees or something. (laughs) There's a lot of trees in that forest. I mean, it was his forest, so he just kind of... He can control the trees when he's near them, but he lets them eat hobbits anyway. 
But no, that's yeah, Tom Bombadil. on everything. Oh, yeah, we're big Tom Bombadil fans. It's just funny that he exists, you know, and his, like, <laughs> history in, like, The Lord of the Rings, where it's like they, they wrote him out of the movies. Charles, are you a fan of Tom Bombadil in the same way that you're that you give Felicia Day's reviews five stars <laughs> on our review of the reviews episodes? I, yeah, I mean, Tom Bombadil is iconic, but he doesn't, you know, how impactful is it? I don't know. Do we, could we know more? Maybe, but you know, it's we don't need to. So, no, I'm a, I'm a, I like the idea of Bombadil being almost like this troll character that only exists in the in the books. It's a fun thing. So, Tom Bombadil. It is fun. It is. I fun. think that, I think that I would dislike Bombadil if he was in the movies. <laughs> yeah but the fact that i got to be like i can't even imagine having this weird like, he would experience like wreck the, the whole tone of the movies he would like oh for like, sure how do you even picture like okay this is a guy that like wears ragged clothes and like sings and dances and has an, and they have feasts and stuff and he talks to trees it's like how do you make that in this tone of the movies where every character is like cool and stoic and and like says all these cool deep things like the ring bearer come forth is time to go on a quest and say like, oh i'm tom bombadil i like the flowers and the trees there's <laughs> no place in the movies <laughs> i i'm sure someone had to have asked peter jackson about so, so who are you gonna cast as tom bombadil he's <laughs> <laughs> like uh <laughs> I want to hear him talk about why he didn't include Tom Bombadil. <laughs> I want to see if he sure can. there is. If I Google like Peter Jackson, Tom Bombadil, something will come up. <laughs> I'd just love to hear him be like, like, what do you think? <laughs> why do you think I didn't include Tom Bombadil? <laughs> well, we'll have to do some research and find out. The only other thing I would say is talking about characters that kind of um overrated maybe it would be um Aragon in this book. He doesn't quite do it for me where it's like, wait, is he the king of all men or is he a ranger? Like why would he be a ranger in the first place? Like why does he choose now to kind of step up? What can and can't he do? It fell very much into like the ring wraiths and Aragon and like all those kinds of things where it's like, okay, I'm, I have no problem accepting that this is what's happening. And I think it's really cool. But if I was this Strider character, I don't know why I would be out ranging all the time. If I was the one to be King and like, I don't know why I would expect that I could just decide to be King whenever I want and it would happen, you know? And so that was the only other character that I was like, Hey, take or leave. That's fair. I, <laughs> I don't know. I liked that this Strider thing got fleshed out more in the books. In the movies, it's like, well, why would they call him Strider? That's Aragorn. Like, <laughs> it's pretty confusing, but the way it's introed in the books feels more natural. So I like that. And I guess you get more of a sense of what Aragorn's role as a ranger in the company would be in the books. Like you kind of have this 
thing where Gandalf is the leader for a while, even though I guess Frodo technically is. And then Aragorn is kind of the person who's like, we should go this way. But end of the day, it's probably Gandalf's call what <laughs> they're actually going to do. So this bit about being the king, yeah, I'm also kind of fuzzy on what exactly is going on in the books around that and his motivations and stuff aren't super fleshed out. But I didn't particularly think, oh, like Aragorn is so overrated in the Fellowship of the Ring books. But maybe I'm not not in those discussions where people are rating him as much as you are, Charles. Yeah, I mean, it, I I mean, I love Aragorn, Duncan. I love this. I love these whole series. It's just another one of those like random nitpicky things after reading the books three times. It's like for all this, like when you compare it to like Gandalf and Frodo and Bilbo and like all these other like characters, and then you have Aragorn, and you're like, okay, Aragorn is just kind of deciding that he's gonna step up now and. You know, it's like, it it didn't have as much resonance with me this time around as a lot of the other characters did. That's fair. And, I mean, we never talked about Frodo, but big big Frodo fan here. Your big Frodo (laughs) guy over there, Charles? I think this is one of his stronger books, because he actually goes through a... And I think it's interesting that in the movies, they go into, like, the orcs attacking and Merry and Pippin getting abducted, where in in the books that hasn't happened yet and they just have Frodo leaving. And I like that in the sense that it kind of arced Frodo's kind of transition from becoming a passive protagonist or like Gandalf telling him what to do, Elrond's telling him what to do, Aragorn's telling him what to do, Tom Bombadil's telling him what to do. And then he decides for himself, like, you know what, it's time for me to I can see this not going well. I need to do my own thing. And then he goes, and then he decides like, oh, Sam, come on, get get in the boat and let's go. Where he's like, he's finally calling the shots and going off. So I thought that was like a good end to the fellowship of having that kind of arc for Frodo. And it was one of the few characters that actually did go through like this change in this arc where most of the characters kind of were still the same. That's a good point. I did feel like the ending felt a little abrupt. Yeah, I can agree. It makes sense with with a few pieces of context. One is that you said Tolkien viewed this as all one book, basically. And yeah, and, and like he wrote like six books that he wanted to be kind of in one collection, and then the publishers were like, "No, we're going to do we're going to release three books." Okay, so there's that, and then there's me coming in waiting for Boromir to die in this book. Right, I'm not misremembering right. the movies. Boromir moment. dies yeah. in the Fellowship of the Ring movie. Yeah. So I, th- I always think of that when I think of the end of that. So then I'm like, I was watching the book run out of pages, and I was like, unless they're gonna really glaze over that fight scene, which wouldn't have shocked me, then. Boromir is going to make it through this one. And he did. So it felt a little abrupt, I think, from my context. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, It certainly didn't have that, like, climactic action scene, you know? I I guess it was, like, Boromir confronting Frodo. 
which was kind of like a scary moment where it's like Frodo realizes he's like alone with Boromir and Boromir's like not acting right. You know, it's a very interesting part of the show, of the series. I mean, they were hinting at it. Like he wrote so many times, like Boromir gave a weird glancing (laughs) look at Frodo, like eyeing Frodo. You're like, okay, that's, (laughs) should keep an eye out on Boromir, I suppose. But yeah, I think, it did end rather abruptly. I remember being like 98% of the way into the book. I'm like, really? But we're like, we're like just getting in these boats, you know? So I think like we just got here. There's still all this stuff, like the orcs have to attack and Marine and Pippin have to get abducted. And Boromir has to fight the, like get hit with the arrows and you know, all that stuff. But I was actually okay with it. I thought kind of to focus on Frodo and Frodo deciding to like that important decision because I feel like in the movies, it almost was like forced because the orcs attacked that they got separated and Frodo just had no time to lose and had to go. That's and, always how I thought of it. Right. So I think by pushing that to the next book and focusing on making this Frodo's conscious decision to go without the driving force of an orc raid contributes greatly to Frodo's character and like just the arc of his of his story. So I did appreciate it for that. It did feel like we were getting shortchanged in terms of action, but that stuff's coming, you know? It's not going anywhere. It's just the conscious decision of making this Frodo's choice versus another passive thing Frodo had to do to avoid getting killed or whatever. So I liked it for that I get reasons. that. I think if I didn't have the context of the movies, I could. It wouldn't have been jarring, the how abrupt it seemed, the ending there. Right. It's good that Frodo gets to make a choice. He he did decide to head back to Tom Bombadil's forest, right? <laughs> I mean, that's if, the first if I was him, that's what I, I think I think you're confusing him with um one of uh, one of Mary's horses. Actually, <laughs> they decided. Doesn't to he go ride? Back. Doesn't he ride Mary's horse back to Tom <laughs> Bombadil? Uh, maybe. <laughs> and that, I, that's the first half of the two towers. I'm assuming. <laughs> yeah, that for sure. All right. Well, I think we uh, we did it here. Is there anything else you want to say before we part ways with with Lord of the Rings: Fellowship of the Ring by J.R.R. Tolkien? Thanks for listening, everyone. Yes, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. I guess I'm just gonna go ahead and start playing us out. Uh, thank you, everybody, as always, for giving us a listen. This was book one of The Lord of the Rings. Thank you so much. And as always, go forth and conquer, friends. 